Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. It has been a half century since humanity last walked on the moon and a decade since the end of the space shuttle program. But private companies are rushing in to take advantage of the opportunities presented by a burgeoning space economy. This summer, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos became the first billionaires to take to the skies in their own rockets, while Elon Musk's SpaceX continues to transport payloads into Earth orbit. And as the billionaire space race accelerates, NASA is poised to put boots on the moon once again in 2024. What's the current economic landscape of space? What's on the horizon given the recent advancements of private companies in space? To find out, I assembled a panel of experts for a recent event hosted by the American Enterprise Institute. This podcast comes from the question and answer portion of the event, but you can find the full event at aei.org slash events. Good afternoon and welcome to the future and present of space commerce hosted by the American Enterprise Institute. Today, I'm joined by a panel of experts who study or work in the commercial space industry. We'll be talking about the present and future of space commerce from tourism to manufacturing and beyond. John Roth serves as vice president of business development for Sierra Space, a subsidiary of the Sierra Nevada Corporation. Rich Balling is vice president of corporate advancement at TechShot. Mike Gold is Executive Vice President of Civil Space Business Development and External Affairs at Redwire Space. And Matthew Weinswell is the Joseph and Jacqueline Elbing Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. I was reading a, uh, a report from Morgan Stanley, which said the current space economy is about 350 billion. They think it's on its way to about a trillion over the next, uh, next 20 years. Sort of financially, can, can we maybe get a couple opinions on what the real potential of this economy is? Uh, John, any, any, any numbers you can give me? Yeah, we've taken a look at uh, all those studies, right? They go any, anywhere from a trillion dollar economy to $1.4 trillion economy. We've looked at uh, 200 companies that have concepts for things that they think could be commercial applications in low Earth orbit. Some of them uh, you may laugh at a little bit and say, well, I, I don't think that's ever really gonna be a business, but others you can really envision that if they're successful, there's going to be a huge increase in, in what kind of business could be done. And, and things like uh, companies are looking at printing organs in space. W wonder if you could really print replacement organs in space uh, or, or create drugs that there's no way you could create on, on the surface of the earth in, in microgravity and the way that, that uh, protein crystals align in space, it's so unique. We look at the market as an overall market capability rather than looking at individual companies. Like, like uh, everyone's been saying, you can't identify what killer app is really gonna be out there. We it more from an aggregation of what we think potential businesses are going to be. So when we were doing our return on investment model, for example, for the, for the space station, we took a look at, at, at different 
functional groups. So satellite servicing, uh, for example, is going to be one area. And there's a lot of things you can do. You can move satellites from one orbit to another. You can repair satellites. You can do orbital debris removal. You can build satellites. You can refuel satellites. So just in that one sector, there's maybe a half a dozen to a dozen businesses that could survive. And then you go over to media and entertainment, same kind of thing. There's there's probably six to 10 businesses we've identified, subcategories under those. And what we've attempted to do is project where we think those markets could potentially lead, assuming that there are some successful players. Uh, not all of them have to be successful. You only need a few companies to be successful. And we've convinced ourselves that there is a, a very strong return on investment potential from this market, uh, which is what is driving us to do the investments that we need to do to finish the crude version of our vehicle, because we think that people in space is going to be a big component of that, as well as the business opportunities that, that exist in space. So you really have to take kind of a macroeconomic look instead of looking at individual businesses. And, and that's what we've done. All these areas I find super intriguing, which is one reason why we're doing it. But the idea of these sort of manufacturing and production facilities in space, once, once you move toward, I guess, proof of concept kinds of items. You're talking about organs and fiber optics. If any of these things really takes off, uh, to scale those up, won't you need more than one commercial facility? Are there thought that you'll need you know, several or more if, if, you're, if you're really talking about producing something uh, in any kind of great quantities? Uh, yeah, so it, you absolutely will need that. And but you know, I want to set a, set a sense of scale on time too. Uh, at least for us, we're all impatient. We all want to see this happen today and tomorrow. And um, and we are one of those companies, obviously, looking at human organs and tissues, and and have done a ton of work on uh, finding out what what the market will bear, in a sense, and and then just beyond the, even the technical capability. And um, it's a great way to wait, make a small fortune out of a large fortune <laughs> in space. And, uh, and we have so many hurdles to get over just from the regulatory standpoint. Um, and, I, and I think we can surmount them. And uh, I, I'm not sure, I think it's probably a, a taller hurdle than the hurdle of where do I build these? I think, I think uh, there are great um, companies who are developing these commercial low earth orbit destinations such as Sierra Space. Um, but the regulatory piece is also super important too, no matter what you're doing. Do you, can you identify any sort of specificity, any kind of regulatory complication or difficulty? Well, well for one thing, um, you know, you can't really send an FDA inspector to, to your manufacturing facility. That's going to be a little tougher. Uh, although some, some may be eager to do that. Now, you know, you can certify a process and it's just like what's happened with, with I think, in my view, the FAA and, and commercial launching. Uh, you've, you've got to stand up a group within the FDA to really focus on um, things they've never seen before, things they've never had to think about before, and how can we all come together and create some new oversight uh, for this new new world that we're living in. Um, uh, Mike, did you have, did you want to Jump in on that. Well, again, as a recovering attorney, I can't help but jump into a regulatory discussion. <laughs> One other issue that's out there is, and everyone take a sip of coffee, the Article 6 topic. This is Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty that requires nations to 
both authorize and continually supervise the activities of the private sector. We're good at authorization uh, here in the U.S., um, but have been challenges ahead of us with the continuing supervision. It's very important for Congress and the executive branch to provide clear direction in terms of which agency is providing that direction. Uh, that's an important issue that we need to do address and should do so with alacrity to ensure that we don't have regulatory barriers slowing down these terrific innovations. Now, I also want to say a word on your first question, which is I really believe that if you look at a laboratory, let's take a terrestrial lab, and that the people working in the lab not only had to be scientists, but had to be the janitors and keep the laboratory going full time, you wouldn't have great science from that lab. And that's been the International Space Station, that our astronauts have to dedicate the lion's share of their time and efforts to keeping the ISS flying. Now, with commercial crew, for the first time, we're actually going to have individuals that can dedicate their time to microgravity research and development. I think that's going to be a game changer relative to the productivity and what we can get out of these systems to say nothing of what Sierra Space is doing. And there's few things that are more important than actually creating a commercial platform that can accommodate and be tailored for these commercial activities. And I, again, I believe that we're just at the beginning of even understanding what the microgravity arena can mean in nearly every industrial sector, that with agribusiness, we'll be able to feed the hungry with new innovations uh, via what biotech was being described by Rich and others, we'll be able to heal the sick. And I guarantee that the applications that are going to be most important, we're not even imagining right now. So I'm really looking forward to what will happen. And then just to say a word about OSAM, and you ask about what the numbers are, we know there's a roughly $300 billion satellite industry right now. And we're going to look back on the days of satellites that were built entirely on Earth as the dark ages, that we will be looking at a future where everything is going to be building itself in space because it makes sense, it's safer, it's more efficient, it's more affordable. And that is a future that I think, again, is something to get very excited about. Yeah, and I'm grateful, um, grateful for our experience on on board the ISS. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's been a great cradle for um, sort of nurturing, trying out new technologies. Uh, but just like a, a a tech incubator in in your hometown, where people can come in and try things out, you're really not going to scale there. Um, it's really not for that. And and so, I I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that, that we can scale things that we we develop and we we discover on board the ISS because of these new uh, vehicles coming online. And and Jim, maybe I'll just jump in here quick too because I think you started with the question about the trillion dollar type forecasts. You know, I mean, if you if you just crunch the numbers, those are not e extreme growth rates, right? That's like a six seven percent growth rate or something for a, an industry that has you know, a lot of risk in it, but a lot of potential. And I think as the other folks have been saying, it's it's a bit of an incremental process as well. We have all of a sudden totally revolutionized launch capabilities. Then you think about revolutionizing commercial space station capabilities, opportunities that seemed impossible suddenly start to become feasible from a business standpoint. So that sort of growth doesn't seem at all out of reach to me anyways. 
I, I think there's a good uh, a good analogy in terms of an inflection point. If you look just a few years back at how many total satellites were in orbit, uh, it was it was a few hundred. It was something like 300 satellites, you know, ten five ten years ago. And now you have literally thousands of satellites, and you have single constellations that are looking at five to ten thousand satellites. Who who would have envisioned that ten years ago? It's just been an amazing inflection point. I think you're going to see the exact same thing. Uh, in commercialization of low Earth orbit. Once you have a platform, you have reliable, low-cost transportation, and, and you're allowing companies like Riches and Mike's to, to do the innovation that they need to do to create products that are going to really be huge sellers, I, I think you're going to see a huge inflection point. Uh, you were talking about clarity and direction with regulation, uh, but what about clarity and direction with the government's commitment to space exploration. How important is that? Because we, at one point in the past, our government was all in on space exploration, then it sort of wasn't all in on space exploration for quite a long time. How important is the overall development of the space economy uh, that we have a, a federal government that, that is interested in going to the moon and the Mars and, and beyond? Jim, it's extraordinarily important that the commercial space revolution, all of these terrific capabilities, wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the government. And that's not just me saying it. We've heard Elon Musk and you know, saying that if it wasn't for the support that he received from NASA and DARPA, there wouldn't be a SpaceX today. So while there's terrific innovation and critical sustainability coming from the private sector, we must never underestimate the importance of consistent direction and support from the US government, particularly as a catalyst for innovation, which is exactly what we saw with commercial resupply services contracts and the COTS program before that, uh, as well as acting as a customer for those services. So government needs to act as catalyst, as customer, and having a vision like the Artemis program that again is consistent and that we can support and that will create innovations and commercial sustainability along the way is vital. We can't go back and forth and we can't equivocate and terminate programs. And that's why I applaud what the Biden administration has done to support and sustain the Artemis program. We hope any future administrations will do so because you know this isn't just important for uh, America. It's important for the world. It's important for the private sector to be able to continue to innovate, to have that consistency and support again from the government as catalyst and the government as customer. One reason I I, I asked that question is I think generally the public is pretty unaware of what's happening now, both uh, the commercial potential for space, uh, as well as sort of the, the more scientific and exploratory aspect. They seem unaware of that. They, uh, they see uh, Musk and Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and they, they view it as, uh, you know, as billionaires just going on a, on, a, on a joy ride. And there's always been sort of this latent sort of Hostility. They people just don't see what it's for. They don't. They don't see the economic potential. So I'm. So I'm wondering. Do you think that message is getting out there about the kind of potential that there really is, even beyond 
sort of pure science. I, I, we still have a, a huge way to go in, in making the public aware of what is really going on in space. I, I see it all the time. I, a friend of mine invited me to do a presentation to a Kiwanis meeting. Uh, so I thought, well, this will be this will be good. I usually talk to space audiences and, and folks that really know a lot about what's going on. And here's a chance to see what uh, what the average people that are out there know about space. They were astounded uh, at all the things going on in space. Uh, they're still, I don't know, half the country still thinks the shuttle is flying to the International Space Station. I mean, they're very unaware in general about all the things going on. But when I talked about the move to commercialization of space and all of these business opportunities that are coming and the idea of putting up a commercial space station. The excitement in that group was, was unbelievable. We had probably 40 or 50 people there and they did not want to stop asking questions. It was, it was an hour long of questions about, uh, about what was going on. So I think if we could capture that kind of excitement in the general public, that, that would be huge for helping to push NASA and, and the government in continuing what they're doing here in commercialization and, and making this, this vision of a commercial economy really happen. If I can just echo John's comments, I think we've done a poor job and need to be much more vocal, particularly outside of the space industry bubble relative to how important space is to every aspect of modern society. When I was with NASA, I was doing an interview with a BBC reporter, and they asked me in the wake of climate change, don't you think it's important to focus on climate rather than space? And to explain, we wouldn't even know about climate change if it wasn't for the amazing capabilities and people at NASA and other space agencies that are leveraging space-based capabilities to understand climatology and what's happening to the planet and how we can resolve those issues. And she was calling me from a phone line that I'm sure was connected through space. So no aspect of that didn't have to do with space, but people just tend to take it uh, for granted. And again, we need to do a better job explaining uh, its importance. And as John described, when people hear about the Artemis program and they see themselves going forward to the moon or they see themselves working on a commercial space station, it does still inspire, but we just need to remind everyone what we're doing and the impact on their daily lives from medicine to machines to agriculture to jobs and economy and national security. We all need to be purveyors of that message strongly because in the end, if our public policymakers aren't hearing that from the people, we won't get the support and we won't get the consistency that we need out of Washington. I had some of those same questions about Branson and about Bezos. And you know, when I start to point out that, well, if you notice Sarisha Banla, who flew with uh, Richard Branson, if you notice she pulls a device out of her pocket, she's conducting an experiment on that flight right there. And it's uh, an agriculture experiment Right. And Mike, you talked about how things that we can learn, even in four minutes of microgravity, could lead toward ways to help improve food deserts, you know, in, in this country and in, in neighborhoods around around the country, around the world. Um, and so these infrastructure, these um, systems that are being developed by these folks, um, sure, a few are going to use that for flights, but they've already been doing research on board these vehicles. And uh, without without the interest of Bezos and Branson and Musk, 
we wouldn't be, I think, as further along in, in some of these developments. Maybe I'll just jump into, I guess we're all, this is an important topic, Jim, so we all want to talk about it. Um, I think your, your question is well poised, and one aspect of it that I also think of, so this is maybe a simplified way of talking about it, but sometimes when people ask me these sorts of questions, I, I talk about us going to space for ourselves, for our kids, and for our grandkids. And in the sense, ourselves is the role it plays in our economy and our lives every day, like Mike was talking about. And and for our kids, it's the sort of stuff about climate change and other major problems we know we face. We can't possibly solve them as well, if not from space. But the, the third part, the grandkids or beyond, is that, you know, in the 60s, there was a magic of space. There was a passion of space as well. And I think if you look at society today, the lack of a frontier on Earth is a, I think that's, I think that's a spiritual problem at some level for, for people that they, they want, they, humans love to explore and space does still offer that. So being able to tap into that a little bit more, which I know is what Bezos and Musk are, and, and Branson are trying to do. So if we can also lean on that, I think those three parts together could be really powerful. You know, the, uh, the economist for NASA, uh, Alex McDonald has a, has a great book, The Long Space Age. And it, it, it was really quite an eye-opener to how long space exploration has been happening. And, and some of the same reasons that it was happening in the, in the 1800s and the 1900s, those same two reasons cover a lot of the reasons why we do it today. The um, signaling value, right, of uh, I'm a, you know, look at my technical prowess as a, as a nation. Um, or if you're a brand, you're seeing a lot of brand involvement on board on board space vehicles. They want to be associated with space. They want to be associated with this spirit of discovery. And so you're seeing the, the branding aspect associated with signaling, the signaling value. But then the intrinsic value of why we do this and what are we going, what are we going to learn? And I think we're still going to need those two reasons to support commercial LEO destinations and to support, you know, research going forward. And, and I think it's important that. Um, if a billionaire wants to pay $55 million to go to space and take some experiments along with him or her, I, I still think that's an okay thing. It's a good thing. We, we've mentioned, uh, I'm not sure, maybe more than one person mentioned about uh, the, the number of companies uh, interested in, in, in conducting business in space. How does, how does that uh, play out globally? Are those American companies? Uh, maybe it was 200 companies. Maybe there's a lot more. But how how is how does that play out in Europe, uh, in Asia? Is this primarily are these primarily American companies interested in doing business in space, or 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 is this a a global phenomenon that may maybe is more most active here, but it's really kind of active, uh, you know, across the world. Yep. So I I would uh, say what you said there at the end is is uh, very accurate. I think it's a global phenomenon, but it's it's certainly more prevalent in the United States. And one of the reasons is the is the ac access to equity in the U.S. It, it tends to be much better than other countries, uh, startup companies have in terms of access to equity, and that obviously makes a big difference. If you can even get a small amount of funding, a, a five million dollar, ten million dollar start, it really allows you to start building a business. And and I think in the U.S. there's there's much more ability to raise those kind of funds. But I'll tell you, we found some companies in Japan, we found companies in, in multiple countries that have that same kind of innovative spirit and the desire to do the same kind of things that the companies in the US are doing. 
We, in fact, in, in Japan, we found two or three companies with very unique ideas about commercial businesses that they might be able to execute in low Earth orbit in, in areas like entertainment and, uh, and, and, uh, and different kinds of tourism type uh, capabilities. So uh, I would say it's certainly a global phenomenon and, and we're trying to tap into that because we think to be successful, it really is gonna have to be a global movement. It's not just gonna be a US based movement. Yeah, I agree that it's a global phenomenon, but one that is currently being led by the United States. And the reason for that, I think, goes back to a previous question you asked about the role of government. Uh, for all the complaining that some of us might do that we're not getting enough support, you know, NASA and Department of Defense, we've really seen our government agencies, and I think NASA in particular, focus on enabling commercial capabilities. And I think this is as important a revolution in terms of procurement methodology and policy than anything that will ever happen technically because it affects everything where NASA is looking not only to meet a particular agency need, but to enable a new industry, to enable new technologies, again, to be a catalyst for commercial change. And again, we saw that with the COTS and CRS programs to launch cargo to the International Space Station that not only did NASA get cargo launched, but it created an entire business ecosystem that spawned a new industry and brought launches back uh, overseas. So uh, the government uh, here in the U.S. has been very active. We're seeing other governments, you know, become that way. You know, frankly, we're fighting subsidies uh, in many areas, but we are seeing the innovations and the desire to participate that we've always seen in space, where it's always been an international program for the International Space Station itself and all of the countries want to participate. And as John mentions, there's terrific innovations and desire to create new ways to be a part of the space industry that we're seeing from overseas. But America is leading right now, doing no small part to the way that the government has encouraged and supported it. And we need to continue and accelerate that so that we can get these new innovations, get these new technologies, uh, and ensure that we remain in the lead and that the future is even brighter than what we're envisioning now. Well, so what does this look like in 25 years? That's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good chunk of time. Start with, uh, start with John Roth. Yeah, I, I really see us having a lot of people living and working in space in 25 years, and not only in low Earth orbit, but I think we'll have a lunar habitat by then. Um, you know, our, our inflatable habitat, we've looked quite a bit at what it would take to have that on the moon. And, uh, and Mike and, and uh, Rich and other companies are looking at in, uh, in situ resource utilization. So how do you have those resources on the moon? NASA's looking at uh, putting nuclear power on the surface of the moon to drive uh, a, a habitat uh, economy. So I think in 25 years, it is not at all uh, out of the, out of the uh, uh, imagination to say that we're not only going to have multiple space stations in low Earth orbit, probably in different locations in low Earth orbit, you'll have a moon base and you'll, you'll be very seriously looking at going to Mars. You won't be inhabiting, inhabiting Mars yet, but you'll be looking very seriously at, uh, at missions to Mars. Rich, what do you think? I really agree with John. I think there's going to be uh, people certainly in low Earth orbit, and I, I think a really healthy number of people on, on the moon as well. And, you know, just like in 1969, who would have imagined a world with um, smartphones and all that those, all, all the, the world and the ecosystem built around things like that. So to, to a great extent, I, 
it's hard for me to imagine what that world might be like. I'm optimistic. I think it'll be a good one, but whatever, whatever it looks like, whatever the details are, I think TechShot will still be there uh, helping people live, live and work in space, making them happy, healthy, and productive in space, whether that's things to work on, ways to entertain them, ways to keep them healthy. Uh, we're going to be there. We're, we're going to be a part of that. Mike, what's, what's, what's the vision here? So let me begin at the Earth orbit and work my way out. I think we'll see a satellite industry that is transformed, where satellites now, again, construct themselves, leveraging you know, terrific red wire technology, where they're building their own arrays. They're transforming themselves later on to serve different missions. And because of that incredible capability, we've avoided the problem of conjunctions and debris in low Earth orbit and beyond because of those capabilities. And then as we go forward to the moon, we see uh, space stations not only uh, in low Earth orbit, like Life Station, but we see them around the moon. And we see manufacturing moving from Earth into space. The space is no longer just the domain of communications. We're building things in space, whether that's Z-Bland fiber or organs like Rich is describing. Space has become a manufacturing zone, while NASA and the international partners push the envelope of exploration even further. As John mentioned, those inflatable habitats are lighter than traditional systems. They have better protection against solar flares and cosmic rays, so they're better for beyond LEO. And we're going to see those within that span. We're going to see those habitats and you know, hopefully powered by red wire irosis moving forward for a historic first human mission to Mars to establish a colony there. Uh, we'll finish with Matt and feel free to talk about asteroid mining. Right, so I won't repeat what the other uh, folks said. I think the notion of people, satellites at a whole other level, manufacturing, all being big stories going forward. I hope and expect that those are probably three of the key uh, areas of growth. So uh, two things that haven't been said as much. So one, Mike hinted at this a little with debris, which is I think, you know, from an economist standpoint, there's some big problems or challenges facing the space sector, both in terms of capturing positive things that we call externalities or spillovers across companies and preventing the negative ones from causing too much trouble. I'm pretty optimistic though, that those will get solved uh, or at least managed over the next 25 years in the sense that there's huge piles of money at stake in solving these. And there aren't that many actors. There are a lot of actors, but it's, it's still a relatively small industry that I think everybody wants to keep these things in check. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about those. And then I'll just throw in the last part, which I guess is a, economist's favorite thing to say, which is I would be, not be surprised if in 25 years, the biggest story is something none of us have even mentioned today, right? I think that's, we, we always got to keep that in mind. So uh, I'll close with that. Well, that's, that's outstanding. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Let me briefly uh, thank everybody. Let me thank uh, John Roth of Sierra Space, Rich Bowling of TechShot, Mike Gold of Redwire Space, and Matt Weinzer of Harper Business. Uh, thanks to uh, the viewers, and please uh, go to our AI events page for other fantastically interesting events. Thank you. Mm -hmm.